In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. We are motivated by our growing community of listeners. Thank you. You are sharing our episodes and in turn creating influence. Influence for positive change to occur. And over the last three months, a number of you have provided valuable feedback and questions. On today's podcast, you asked, we answer. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Roger Kelly. How you guys doing? Pretty good. How about yourself? Doing really well. We've had some real solid traction on our last couple episodes, and I really want to say I appreciate the emails that are coming in from our listeners and helping us spread the word. Getting uh, other people to share our content is really important, and you can continue to email us at radgenpodcast at gmail.com. And why don't you do this? Do me a favor right now. If you've been listening to us, you like our content, open up that Apple app and just tap the stars. Give us five stars. Or even if you feel compelled to write a a couple words of encouragement for us because all that stuff helps us and helps spread the word. A couple episodes ago, we did a You Ask, We Answer podcast and uh, we decided to do another one and we have a list of questions that have come through from our audience and I think Roger posted some out to Twitter got some also I say we jump right in and get into that content let's do it boom boom all right well the first question comes from uh, uh, JC um, at Atomic Akiso so A-T-M-O-I-C-A-C-E-S-O And he's asked, uh, I'd like to know what competent, evidenced, anxiety, panic, mental health treatment would look like versus the psychiatric model and how the psychiatric model can impair outcomes. It seems now that I'm harmed and nothing works. Yes. Thank you, JC, for getting in touch with me on Twitter and also for your involvement in the community, those who have been harmed by psychiatric drugs and benzodiazepines in particular, and all the work that you're doing there to support others. It's a great question. Um, The thing about panic attacks, and we've addressed this at various times on our podcast and discussing the role of anxiety and fear and the struggles in the, in with one's mental health, if there's, if someone's a worrier or prone to panic and how debilitating and difficult that, that could be. So I want to acknowledge upfront, if anyone has ever had a panic attack, it's very scary you believe that you're dying. A lot of people do having a heart attack. It is your body's physiological response system in overdrive, right? It is the, the uh, sympathetic nervous system in its fight or flight mode. And it can be really scary. So we can understand why people would be driven to seek relief and why physicians would even be caring enough to want to, to provide a a prescription that could provide somebody some immediate relief. But, you know, as we've discussed on this podcast previously, the road to hell is often paved with good intentions. Mm -hmm. And those prescriptions come with consequences, especially benzodiazepines. I do encourage everyone to listen to our episode on benzodiazepines. But the, the message that has to be discussed regarding anxiety and panic is to know that there are safe and effective frontline treatments that should be administered. And when I see what I mean safe and when I mean effective, that there is a extremely strong response rate to be able to treat panic. And some of the principles regarding the treatment of panic attacks include changing your relationship to that experience. Panic attacks, in a lot of sense, are a fear of fear. So Mm -hmm. somebody experiences the physical sensations of anxiety. They might not even be paying attention or being aware of it. And before they know it, they might be hyperventilating. And their mind is telling them that they're in danger. 
And it's that fear of that experience that creates a panic attack. Panic attacks are generally short in duration, no more than 15 minutes. And um, it could lead a person to feel extremely hot, sweaty, uh, have a hard time catching their breath, hyperventilating, even pass out, sweating. And so the effective treatments, there are panic control treatments, behavioral treatments that are highly, highly efficacious. And they first include a lot of education and bringing attention to those sensations of anxiety and allowing a person to be mindful of the experience and to develop some acceptance of them. And like most treatments for anxiety, they involve exposure. Mm-hmm. So there, there are uh, treatments that include what's called interoceptive exposure. So exposing you to those sensations, but now you're in control of it. You understand where it's coming from. You're making room for it. You have a way to respond to it. Do you have any good examples from your experience uh, working with someone where you put them in a situation that you knew they would be uncomfortable and maybe they weren't prepared for it? Yeah. Can you share anything? Yeah. Well, we always prepare them for it. I don't want people to think that they're coming in and they're going to do an exposure treatment because that it's that education piece up front. So might have them, you know, run stairs, spin around in a chair, breathe slowly through, a, uh, breathe through a straw quickly. Oh, so you're trying to get that feeling. It's that interoceptive okay. exposure. Yep, 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 yep. Now, it gets, it can get much more complicated than that because the original anxiety, someone feeling anxious can be related to multiple factors, even conditioned response to trauma triggers or other things. So a real competent psychologist or therapist understands that the person's original experience of anxiety can be related to other factors. One of the messages of sound treatment is that your emotions are there for a reason. We have to understand why they're there, what they're informing us, and we have to become more mindful of them. So we might have the initial treatment to be able to manage the the panic symptoms, especially when you're in public, because there's something that can be developed called panic disorder. Panic disorder is the fear of having panic, panic attacks in public. So once you have a panic attack, you're then you're thinking about a panic attack and you induce a panic attack. Well, you, you, you bring it on yourself. That can happen. Okay. So, but if you're afraid of having a panic attack in public, you start mm-hmm. to restrict your, your okay. lifestyle. So yeah. avoidance maintains this response. But yes, you do go out to public. You're hypervigilant to it. You become anxious. Those anxiety symptoms act, like a, act as a cue. And that cue is, oh, you're in danger. And then you have panic. Mm -hmm. So I do tell people, if you're allowed to fully be anxious, you can't panic. So at a young age, um, even school age children that would might experience some sort of a panic attack or, or anxiety, the, um, they basically will take them out of the situation. Um, are there age differences in terms of therapy? I guess is what I'm getting at when you work with children versus when you work with adolescents versus when you work with adults. I think the same principles applied panic attacks for for children are rather rare Um, they would have to learn that there's a really dangerous situation and they'd have to respond to their anxiety in that specific way developmentally that's a bit difficult you know for for a a young child to believe they might be dying or something is so scary that they're unable to manage those symptoms Um, the the situations where obviously that that might be contradictory would be, you know, a, a traumatized child mm-hmm. and uh, anything that would act as a cue to, as a reminder to that, that trauma uh, would be a, a panic type response. But let's get to the second question um, is how the psychiatric model can impair outcomes. So the first thing is, if the most important aspect of, of treating panic is to develop a relationship with that anxiety in which it's okay to be there, an acceptance-based approach, and that you can exhibit some control over that experience. Turning to a pharmaceutical to blunt that symptom impairs that process. Additionally, that treatment is usually benzodiazepine. So benzodiazepines are the ones that act on the, um, the nervous system in such a sedative way, GABA and glutamate, where it lowers your it's it's a sedative so it really works but it's highly um addictive so it creates dependence almost most initially and after as 
a couple weeks on that, you'll you'll have you'll experience rebound anxiety. So you don't want to be turning to something external to manage the symptoms. That's how you develop substance abuse problems. Usually two to six sessions are effective enough for, for treating panic attack. But again, if um, too many mental health clinicians out there think it's just the talk therapy and just talking about your anxiety or talking about your worries is sufficient, it's not. It has to be intensive, has to include exposure. It has to, has to include gradually increasing exposure to what has been avoided and feared. And you have to have the skills to be able to tolerate the experience in the short term in order for you to learn. There's a neurological aspect around learning that that sensation is safe. So you said the skills. <clears throat> are these the skills that you are teaching them how to feel what they're feeling to control it? Or are you giving them little things that they can do when they feel like a, something might be coming on, like a breathing technique, a relaxation? Those are the skills that you're using? They're cognitive behavioral skills. I think from a cognitive perspective, it's um, you know how you think about your experience. Mm-hmm. So it's targeting the overestimation of threat and beliefs that your internal sensations or experiences are dangerous. So that's kind of cognitive. That's learning. Behavioral could include um, skills such as that uh, to engage the parasympathetic nervous system. Most frequently, it is is controlling your breathing. Mm-hmm. So if people who are prone to panic are hyperventilating because their breathing has become shallow mm-hmm. and rapid, in order to increase the oxygen rate, you enter into diaphragmatic breathing. So it's just slowing down your breathing. Nasal in, breathing. In through your nose, mm-hmm. coming from your belly, out through your mouth. Got it. Right? But there's an acceptance component. Acceptance is a skill. It's making room for what's there. It's being mindful of it. It's allowing its presence. The last part of that question there, before we move on, says it seems now that I'm harmed, nothing works. I actually hear that quite a bit from, you know, students, not exactly that, but that kind of say they're going through anxiety. Um, How often, you know, do we see people that say, well, I already tried this. I already did this and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. How do, you know, do we encourage them to say it does keep, you know, keep going. I mean, do you hear that a lot? My concern is that these evidence-based treatments aren't disseminated. Mm. There was a, there was a, an article I read probably five years ago now, and I'm, I'm a behaviorist. I'm a cognitive behaviorist in, in a lot of sense. I have an open mind to a lot of things that, that work, but from a framework, I'm trying to rely on, on science and a cognitive behavioral framework is a robust enough science base for me to be able to, you know, understand that that complex interaction between the mind and, and the body and our actions and our behavior. But even cog- I was a survey of, co- of people who identified as cognitive behavioral psychologists or therapists. Only ten percent were providing exposure-based treatments. So I think it's really rare that people are getting this type of treatment, the majority of the mental health field from psychiatrists to nurse practitioners to social workers to counselors to other psychologists aren't providing this care. So it's rare, Kelly, that somebody comes to me and says, I've tried this and it, and it works. Okay. And it's rare for somebody to be, in my opinion, to be provided this type of, this type of care with these type of principles and it, and it not to help. I, I think it's just a kind of a common sense approach to uh, to overcoming fear mm-hmm. and overcoming anxiety that's pretty tried and true and uh, you know has its roots in just human adaptation and human learning. Next question. All right. Love what you guys are doing. Oh, I like questions like this. <laughs> they start off strong. <laughs> I went through a horrific time due to a four-year prescription to Xanax. Withdrawal, seizures, all of it. Three years, and I'm finally having inner peace. It was like being on a roller coaster with my hair on fire. I'm a former Division One wide receiver from the ACC. I say this, I guess, to verify that these meds will tear anyone apart. I would love to speak with you more and do anything to help the cause. 
There are more of me out there that shouldn't have to go through the hell I went through. The awareness needs to continue to strengthen. Thank you for the email. Uh, that was in regards to our benzoinfo.com, benzodiazepine uh, podcast. So do you want to touch on that, Raj? Yeah, first, Joe, thank you for reaching out to us. I know I don't know how you guys think about the future of this podcast, but I do believe there has to be a movement and there has to be a collective shift in the way that we as a culture think about our own lives, our purpose, our mental health. And that's going to include having people like Joe come on the podcast and tell their story. Mm. The more people that we can have tell their story, then we can spread the word. And I think people can better understand what it's like to have to go through these type of treatments, treatments that actually are harmful. And so Joe is a great example of this because he was prescribed a benzodiazepine. And for four years on Xanax is a criminal offense, in my opinion. And if this requires a movement, I want to get your thoughts, fellas. Let's start the conversation on how that movement even begins. How do we begin to spread the word on the topics that we've been passionate about, how do we begin to create change in our communities, popular culture? Let me let me start that off because what I what we're talking about is this kind of like di- diaspora effect of the word spreading, right? So it starts first with just one person becoming aware, and often the awareness is people are thinking about how they can protect themselves, but it's really so much more than that. In one of my previous jobs, I worked in a restaurant industry, and I remember this little data point. That said, when someone has a negative experience at a restaurant, they tell eight people. Mm. But if they have a positive experience, they might tell one or two. So now that you've had a negative experience by putting and harmed by uh, a medication, you almost have this ability now to relate to what that person's going through and share the challenges that you encountered and putting them in the right direction to seek out more information and to get control of the situation. So Joe, by sharing his story, now has gotten that message out. And we talking about her getting that message out. Now we all have an opportunity to look to those around us that might be struggling. And if you find out that somebody is taking a drug for an extended period of time to get them to successfully with, remove themselves from that and, and seek out a, a better form of therapy. Your thoughts? Yeah, I love it. Um, a lot of people out there who have come on on Twitter or social media who are telling their story, they're doing it for a purpose. They're trying to find some um, some positive from what the struggle that they've been through. And if they can help one person out there, then it's it's worth it. Joe is a Joe is a football player. We're all three of us here are football fans. I played small college football. Sean played in high school. Uh, are you guys familiar with Lane Johnson, the tackle for yeah. the Philadelphia Eagles, and what happened at the you know this past fall with him? Mm-hmm. Well, not the full story. So he he was experiencing a mental health crisis, and when people think about mental health crisis, I don't think they're always viewing it as they're having a crisis from the drugs or reaction to the drugs. So he was having withdrawal from the drugs that he was on horrible reaction for drugs that he took initially for anxiety. I don't know the specifics of them. I don't think we know what drug he was taking, but he went from a very successful, gregacious, all pro NFL football player dealing with some anxiety in his life to feeling suicidal and not believing like he would want to live. Like felt like he was crawling in his own, like in his own skin. He felt so horrible, which is usually that, indication that you're experiencing some drug reaction and not enough people understand that the drugs that they're prescribed to to try to feel better from whatever they're going through can make them feel like hell and create months or even years or a lifetime of struggle and joe thank you for your for your uh reaching out to us love to talk to you a little bit about your life as a as an athlete at that level 
obviously you were someone who was in great shape, who physically was doing well. So if we could better understand what was going on with you mentally that led to that prescription, then we can also share alternatives. But I think there has to be a challenge to conventional thinking and medical models. It's such a powerful model out there that is trying to associate your struggle with an illness to be drugged. It's a culture change. And that culture change starts at the youngest levels. Mm. It starts in how we raise our kids. It starts with the messages in schools, common sense. Like if we could teach greater emotional awareness and understanding that our emotions are there to serve us when we don't feel well, whether that's anxious or we're sad or we're down, just shifting to understand that that emotion is there to serve us. There's a reason for it. There's a reason we're not feeling well. It could be as simple as not sleeping well or feeling physically ill, but it could be being sad because something in our lives is sad. And how you respond to that emotion is the key to coping. We don't teach coping. We don't understand our emotions to serve us or how to respond to adverse events. That's as important in education and raising kids as how well you do academically or how you perform in other areas. There are messages that we're frankly not really good at in American culture or in Western culture. I think at the you asked what else we have to break that that large chain of of control that bigger companies, pharmaceutical companies have, I, th- I think people don't realize that when they create programs, those programs come into to the educational system through in-servicing. And so some of the messages that teachers are getting that they take as fact are actually not really factual information and they pass it along. I think we're going to have to really fight, fight that whole large scale component of this too. Yeah. From a, public health perspective and a government perspective. I don't think pharmaceutical companies should have the ability to advertise to the public. Obviously, we looked back at the... the you can't do it in other countries. I was gonna, how many countries total right now do we know that actually allow Let me um, look, look that up. I don't yeah. believe the UK can. I don't believe Australia, New Zealand. Um, it I'm, could be unique in that. I'm not I, really sure. Let me... I'm, I'm going to investigate. Oh, let me but get the that number answer. of times I've heard things like chemical imbalance at in-service is... is off the charts. They condition the American public to think about your internal experience as if it's an illness. They made up the chemical imbalance crap. And it, you know, it, it altered the way you experience your own feelings. So that's a generation of kids. Imagine if you never viewed anxiety as something that was dangerous. Anxiety is not dangerous. You have a completely different relationship with it. You grew up in a home where someone said you're If you're feeling nervous or you're feeling anxious, you're living life fully. That is a great cue for you to push through and you've learned these ways of kind of managing those feelings. It alters your entire way that you cope in your life. So there are only two countries that in the world where direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs is legal. That would be the United States and New Zealand. Yeah, I think it starts there. I think the second thing is um, the trial data should not be protected as a trade secret. Explain a little bit further on that. So when they do actual experiments and they, um, you know, they're logging everything, creating the, uh, the, individ- the study, the, all of that all the raw stuff, data, the raw data, they do not have to disseminate amongst the population. Nope. It's protected as a trade secret. Yeah. Why would numbers be a trade secret? There's nothing in there about the chemical makeup. Well, maybe there is in in the inserts and stuff, but the actual numbers to me are just the validation or invalidation of whether or not something works. Yeah. I mean, the only way that I can see it it, or the purpose of it is to protect fraud. It's funny because the whole Pfizer thing regarding the COVID vaccine, you shared that little twitter image um where somebody said you know trust the science um i'm not going to use the words correctly but why would a company be hiding their information and trying to bury it for 75 years if it's trust trust fighting it in court right yeah fighting in court to not show that trial data and that's such that's such an a very common sense response to it in terms of like trust the science and they're putting it away i was like 
why didn't anybody else ever come out and say that before? So like, it was trending on Twitter yesterday. Was um, it? Okay. Yeah, but but this morning there was um, <laughs> a, a thing that said this in almost like a disinformation that that's skewed. Those pages that were out, the 90,000 pages, that's from older data. I, I, you know, that was the top trend on Twitter. So now we have now another thing that we have to do is you have to make sure that big giant social media companies are sending out real information as well and not what I saw on Twitter today. There's, there should be open access to the data to allow scientists and statisticians to evaluate them. It shouldn't have to go through a court process to be able to determine where they were, where they were fraudulent. There's a lot of money though in pharmaceutical advertising that would disrupt a lot of our entertainment industry. Uh, millions and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. I know it's sad, but it goes back to Joe requires a movement. Um, listen to podcasts like this, share, share podcasts like this, find the, the voices of experts and those in the field who are talking about mental health from a different perspective. And don't be afraid well, to share your own experiences. It's the only way that people are going to get their voices out there that have a contrary view, but also have science backing them for that contrarian view. Mm. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next question. Um, third question is, you have touched on um, a lot of this, I'm sure, in previous podcasts, but I'm curious if you could highlight what your top three to five things are that you are frustrated and concerned by in the mental health industry, and then what you wish the general population knew about each of those things. Start with that one. And that was by, that was by Lindsay from Colorado. Yes. Thank you, Lindsay. Three to five. This is uh, probably not going to be much of a surprise to our listening audience about what I would and most frustrated about and uh, but I'll let you guys also kind of chime in here number one for me it's a bio it's a biomedical model of emotional disorders uh, this is more industry developed pseudoscience driving the marketing of pharmaceuticals to correct chemical imbalances that do not exist and this has altered the manner in which generations of people understand their emotional distress drives them to toxic drugs that create a lot more problems and but more importantly, I think it's stunted scientific advancements in our field. So the safe or evidence-based principles of a lot of psychological treatments are not disseminated. And that's really important to me because um, if those were provided frontline, even in healthcare centers, we could prevent a lot of people from going down this path. But it's frustrating to me that biomedical understanding because it is now this folklore in culture where it's discussed in from teachers it's discussed from your neighbor from your friends this idea i have a chemical imbalance there's something wrong with my brain all things that are debunked science it's in the psychology curriculum currently at our high school the chemical imbalance yeah it's just so frustrating to me i mean i just get so angry at that um because it's conditioning people for, for generations. So that's number one for me. What about you guys? Go ahead, John. That's your number one. And you might go into some other ones that are kind of in that same space. But for me, I, I was coming into this industry and what I've experienced is that I'm going to point the finger at your colleagues, that there are people that need help that are not getting the help because this, the talk therapy model of someone who's going through a bad relationship is seeing somebody weekly for 20 years. To me, that's a broken model. That there needs to be a, fi a financial incentive for those that are taking on those who are struggling the most that require the help to get in with a psychologist and do these evidence-based uh, forms of therapy. And the people that are seeing the uh, worry warts, the un unhappy relationships, they just keep pushing the challenging cases over to the very few that are willing to take them on. To me, that's, that's just something that people are not aware of. And that's, that's what frustrates me. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add to that because I think that's right there at the top of my list. And you made some great points. You see this in the free market system in the United States. 
So if you are not going to be on an insurance panel and the insurance companies control the cost. Mm -hmm. So someone like myself, I'm board certified, I'm experienced, um, I'm I'm a doctoral level psychologist. I don't have to be on insurance panels. I do to be able to provide cost-effective care to the people who need the help the most. But some of the top psychologists around the country would are not on insurance panels, and they're charging $250, $300 a session for therapy. So who is your customer base then? Mm-hmm. You're, you're working with a, a population of people who have economic privilege to that extent that they can pay for therapy. Additionally, it's not only those who have the financial resources to pay it, but it's a stability in that person's lives that they can come each week. So you end up like working with people who are functioning at a fairly high level and make a lot of money. And then the people who are really struggling the most where There's functional impairment, impairment to work, impairment to go to school. And those people require imminent uh, kind of help. And it might be even difficult to get into your office and they might not have the financial resources to to pay for them. Outpatient centers are not, and top therapists and psychologists, they're not taking those people on, on their caseload because of the demand on them personally and in their practice. So where are they driven to? They're, they're all driven to community or hospital-based centers where they're getting a prescription drug and at, at best working with a social worker from a non-evidence-based way. Mm-hmm. So the entire system screwed up. It really is. And it, it goes back to the, that financial incentive for skilled psychologists. And I looked at a, an explanation of benefits for a, a medical um, procedure that uh, my family had and the amount that the, the hospitals are billing for just like a 45 minute physical therapy session and everything that was tied to it is pure insanity. And the fact that a psychological practice that's probably doing more benefit for somebody gets a fraction of what the hospitals are able to, to charge to me is it just shows that there's really no, um, no equality within the, the system in terms of your physical and your mental health. Right. And there is a mental health parity act that exists. I don't think anybody understands it or knows it, but start reading up on it. Cause we pay a lot of money with our health insurance. Everybody's basically required to have health insurance now. And the fact that you can't get care to me is it's just frustrating. It is frustrating. And leading off of that, the, the thing that frustrates me, The most, obviously, other than the chemical imbalance thing would be the DSM. Um, I'm not a big fan in learning all these 35 podcasts now and just kind of having this come back up at the DSM, trying to categorize people. And um, every, I don't know, every five, 10 years, a brand new one comes out. And now we have new categories. And it really just, I, I think it frustrates me that people have to identify, you know, with whatever it is they're diagnosed with. And they, you know, that, so I'm, I'm a little bit frustrated at the DSM. There's, there's safety in this. And this is what we're seeing more and more. There, people are pulling for this diagnosis because we're all taught to believe that diagnosis will drive an effective treatment just from that medical model. So people are pulling for this label and this label that they can attach onto as if it now describes them or it defines their experience. And now you can find that path towards help. But people don't understand the DSM and how it was developed. You know, you would imagine it was based off of like decades and decades of good scientific data to inform a constellation of like symptoms and behaviors that could really help identify where a person both cognitively, emotionally, and behaviorally um, can run into problems in their life. And then there's effective treatments for it. It's not that at all. Um, You know, our experience is very, very complex that you can't put it into a a category. A category makes it easier for research and it makes it easier to... Uh, study 
uh, for treatment. So you're often fitting people into boxes, boxes where they don't fit into. And unfortunately, what that does, the negative consequences is you're fitting a person into a box. You're not learning about the person. Yeah. And all the complexity of that individual and what influences why they may be struggling and what's maintaining why they're struggling. Instead, you get this forced conceptualization as a depressed person or an anxious person or personality disordered or a post-traumatic stress reaction. And that just impedes your ability to truly understand that person as an individual. What I love about my job is I never meet the same person twice. And there are groups around the world that are trying to change this system. And it's best to look at it on a dimensional scale instead of a label or a category. And so that's like dimensions of impairment and um, of, of symptoms and how they range from adaptive all the way to kind of non-adaptive. There's just a, I think there's all this wealth of opportunity for us to get back to understanding the uniqueness of each person, but what amongst us as human beings is similar. So if we're prone to becoming obsessive or we're, we're prone to anxiety, fear, or periods of low mood, what do we know about the human experience that can inform an effective treatment? We're trying to discuss those principles yeah. on here. I go back to something you said early on in one of our discussions was you said, well, what is normal? You know, basically a DSM is trying to identify what is abnormal and put you into this category off to the side. But who's to say what's normal? What's normal about grief? Lots normal about grief. But yet it's in the DSM as an abnormal experience to grief, right? right. So to me, it's just... That you, thing is, is a you know, that, that particular diagnosis, though, we had a lot of reaction from that. And a lot of people listened to that episode. And I think that's waking a lot of people up to how kind of hypocritical or, or just not very well organized the DSM is with that because, you know, people lost people. They are grieving. I still grieve for my father. I still, you know, mm -hmm. it's crazy. But I think a lot of people are starting to open their eyes a little bit to how kind of eh, the DSM. <laughs> well, you know what I've been into lately, what I've been watching? What's that? So I've been interested in psychosis and the differences between the Western world, the UK, the United States, Canada, um, how we view psychosis versus like indigenous cultures. And I'm just in the beginning of kind of my research on this and have a lot more to do. I'm sure it's going to be a future podcast, but how indigenous cultures will look at a, a psychotic break more in terms of a spiritual awakening and a gift and uh, how there are elders or even shamans within that culture or that community who also have similar gifts who've known how to respond to that and can help someone through that that journey i think we're very very limited in how we think about things that deviate from the norm and there are likely people out there who have gifts or spiritual awakenings or other people out there who may ex experience empathy at a high level mm -hmm. and are sensitive, emotionally sensitive to the needs of others. And in our culture, we are viewing those people as sick, as if they're deviating from the norm but in another context, in another culture, those people could be revered even at another time in, in history. And you just wonder if they were treated in that manner, how that changes the course of their response to that episode. And historically, when I start reading about manic episodes or psychotic episodes, before these drugs were brought to market, they weren't as impairing as they are to as they are today. There would often be like a first episode psychotic episode, and that would be the only one. And how valuable just support and safety is in response to something like that can be so jarring. I think we have a lot to learn, and then and we don't investigate how the drugs, which are to target those symptoms create more symptoms and impair somebody's quality of life 
when the trajectory could have been much different. But that's us in our, you know, ethnocentric kind of way of thinking about the world and not attuned and aware to how other cultures have responded to similar behaviors. Yeah, because when we don't understand something or if it's not something we're familiar with, we have a tendency to discredit it or call it, you know, crazy stuff. An illness. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And, th- and that word is is loaded. You know, mental illness is a loaded word. It, it, it suggests that, you know, something's broken within you when it might not be that. Right. Um, the final one, Lindsay, thank you for for sending this, is I, I think that there are huge limitations in the educational system of training therapists, and 99% of therapists don't understand what is a normal reaction to an adverse event and how people recover. I think they fail to understand the complexities of the human experience from response to, from recovery to trauma to all the different factors that might be influencing why somebody is feeling the way they're doing from sleep to mood um, or from sleep, from nutrition to activity, to their own purpose, history. So many therapists also promote harmful ideas that are more based on popular culture than anything else. We see so many avoidant coping strategies, reinforcing this idea that what you're feeling is dangerous instead of supporting approach coping and you know acceptance for the experience and an understanding of your emotions so many therapists are also scared of what a person feels or or how they how they act um and with no background or research into the pharmaceutical industry and these drugs they themselves are making recommendations so it's just part of the problem it just seems to be, uh, you know, a cycle that's kind of feeding on itself in a negative way. And, and I wish that we could change the way that we train therapists and we can, we can think about the mental health system as an integral part of the healthcare system. Why do you think it can't be changed? I mean, is it just because it's been in, the system has been there for now years and years and years and like anything else, it just status quo is the way it goes? Or do you not have enough people like yourself, like us, just kind of educating people. Yeah, on that. Kelly, we've done this at nauseum. Um, it's the influence of money. So you hire the academics on the payroll. You write the, you write the textbooks. It, it's such a, like an influential model right now. This idea of these diagnoses, these categories. But for social workers and, and counselors, it, it, you know, a lot of them are just learning basic counseling skills. The DSM. And not much else. I, I just, they come out of these programs and in no way are they equipped to deal with what they're about to, what they're about to treat. And they just don't have the skills to be able to treat real clinical conditions. They don't have the skills to treat a panic attack. They don't have the skills to treat anorexia and bulimia. Somebody's cutting or suicidal. Like that just general talk supportive therapy is limited to people who are of high functioning status and going through phase of life difficulties. Where about those clinical conditions where someone's really suffering and really impaired? That is where we need people to know and have a, a, a research base of principles and know how to apply it in a way that's going to be able to help those people. And that's just not happening. I mean, you're still got people you know, talking about theories and schools of psychotherapy. You're, go, you're going to school and you're paying all that money to read about what somebody wrote in 1930 at that culture and that time about why somebody uh, might be experiencing mental health problems. It's, it's an absolute waste of time and money. The last question that um, Lindsay asked here, have you, have you seen success in alternative therapies in, conduct, in conjunction with therapy that have helped with anxiety? Uh, yes, uh, I have. I think, you know, it's a lifestyle change in addition to a good cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, the things that, you know, I think are most important is that you are incorporating meditation into your life. Um, the human mind is very complex. And when someone's in anxious state, their mind is in the past. It's in the future. It's creating stories. We're attaching to those ideas. Your ability to slow down your mind and being connected with the present moment, the ability to sit still, 
to be able to reframe the way that you think about uh, the purpose that exists in your life, to direct your attention in a value-based way. Meditation serves that purpose. Everybody should be meditating. Uh, You should be able to take time out of your day just to sit and to focus and get in a clear headspace. And those skills that are learned within a meditative state can be applied throughout the day when you know your mind starts getting busy. The busy mind creates distress. And learning to slow that mind down and direct your attention, critically important. And then go back and look at our, uh, go to our podcast where we're talking about nutrition deficiencies and sun exposure, forward ambulation, optic flow. What about, um, I've heard a lot about, is it Wim Hof? Is it the breathing method? Yeah. And like cold plunges, saunas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you looked into that at all? Are you seeing anything interesting in that space? Very, very interesting things. Um, a whole nother podcast topic. Is it Wim Hof? Is that what it's The Wim Hof method. Yeah. Okay. He's, uh, I watch some of his videos where he, he does cold plunges and then he has a whole breathing technique. Cool. Yeah. Let's, and, let's, and then there's tons of research on, on sauna. Um, you know, hyperthermia, hypothermia. Well, then I'd say <clears throat> alternative therapies, um, that should be a future discussion of ours. That would be interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated by some of that stuff. Definitely. Um, you know what? If I can jump in here quick because I sent you guys a question that I got late before we got into this podcast, which I think is important. It's from at Zach Rodenheiser, what's the best way a counseling therapist can help a patient come off meds, especially since we often get told to stay in our lanes? And it's a great question. And the first thing is there is a lane, and we want to acknowledge that lane. You are not a medical professional, um, and we want these clients under medical supervision. However, I'll tell you, Zach, you might be the only person in that person in that uh, individual's life that is letting them know that these drugs create withdrawal and that they have dangerous side effects and you could be feeling much worse from being on them. You might be the only person can't trust their medical professional who's aware of some of the data and the limitations of these trials and how I think when if we're talking 10 years from now, and anyone's listening to this podcast, you realize we were right. These, a lot of these drugs will be pulled from the market in a, in a society that actually cares about well, the well-being. So these are dangerous, dangerous drugs. And each drug is different in the dangers that it could pose from abruptly stopping those drugs. And the dangers that could be even not tapering in a safe and effective way. Now, I'll be honest, there's a lot of physicians and prescribers out there who don't understand tapering. So I can refer you to some people. Um, one of them is that uh, benzoinfo.com, the benzo benzodiazepine information coalition for those who are uh, dependent on benzodiazepines. Um, there's a lot of research out there. Surviving antidepressants is another organization. Um, and then just being making sure that you are following and and listening to the other experts, um, even in psychiatry. Uh, Dr. Joanna Moncrief is one out of the UK where you know she talks about the drug-centered approach, um, and she will be very open and honest about what these drugs actually do and the harms created for them. I think she's reasonable and realistic about situations where they might provide some benefit and then uh, the situations where they provide harm. But your education to your client is vitally important and you have to continue to do your research in order to be able to provide those clients the education they need to make informed health decisions. We're in support of informed consent. They're not getting it. So if you provide them, have discussions with their prescribers, you talk to prescribers and share your concerns and you work collaboratively with that medical professional, that's the best way to go about it. Do we have another question? Oh, yeah. What's this? Okay. This is... um 
What's the story behind the name? Oh, the name of the podcast. Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Let me try answering it. Because, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to the DBT um, Needs a Publicist episode because the name of our podcast came from our clinical director of DBT. Being, she, she suggested it. She suggested it, yes. It's, it's part of DBT. Being radically genuine is when you're on an equal playing field between a therapist and a client so you can share freely and openly um, and exchange ideas without judgment from one another. Yeah, it's a, it's a level of validation in dialectical behavior therapy, the highest level of validation, being radically genuine, and it's authentic. Um, mm-hmm. And it's kind of removing that veer, um, that veneer of a, of a therapist who acts like they do in movies or the psychoanalytic uh, Freudian kind of psychologist who's a blank slate, all the crap that has you know, been part of this mental health history. It's you're, being, you're a genuine person. And in that, in that room, you're being genuine yourself. You're fallible. You're not perfect. Uh, you're definitely not an expert on that person's life. That client is, is the expert. And you're there to support and help them. Yes, is there going to be a natural power differential because it's a, it's a one-way intimate relationship and that person is, is much more exposed? Absolutely. But you're not trying to be anyone different than who you are. You are bringing your own personality and who you are in, into the room in a genuine way. You know, the word radical is always like it's, it's, an, it's an approach that is uh, so much different than what is what is the norm mm-hmm. right and it's and you you're going to embrace it uh, you don't take yourself too too seriously you don't ignore the obvious you're feel free to say what's on your mind to the client and express how you feel without fear of how it's going to affect that client you don't treat the client as fragile and i hope that attitude comes through in this podcast we're providing people information that's outside a lot of the mainstream ideas and what people are facing day to day. And we have to trust you as a, as a, as a consumer, as an individual, that you're going to make decisions that are in the best interest of your life or that of, a fam- of your family. And you can take this information and do further exploration around it. And we treat you with respect that you can handle this information in a way that can be able to further support your own recovery from struggle or to help hopefully could help open the door for new opportunities for you to gain greater knowledge. Yeah. I'll add that being in this room, this is a small room. There's three of us here. So I look at Kelly, I look at Roger. It's very easy to share openly of personal things in my life and and be vulnerable. But I'll tell you what, if we were sitting up on an auditorium and we were looking out at a group of hundreds of people that listen to this podcast, I think I would probably hold back a little bit. So this this room and, and talking into a microphone, uh, we've grown comfortable with it. Probably too comfortable to the point where I'll share something and, and my wife will go, don't talk about that. But, <laughs> but it humanizes us. And, and I think Roger shares stuff. Kelly, you share things as well. And it, 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 people understand who we are. I think over the course of time, there's been a lot of growth between the conversations that we've had. We want to joke around a lot and sometimes we can, but we always know that, you know, in the end, the goal of the podcast is to give that information that isn't always out there and to have these conversations, even if it means we have to share some personal stories, you know, and, and become a little bit more vulnerable. And I think the vulnerability that we share actually can help our audience also know that it's okay, you know, to talk about things that are going on in your life and to, uh, to get to that point. Yeah. I've had to dial back the jokes a little bit because I, I've become more serious about some of these things. Well, I, I was- realize how, how important it is for those listening to us that I shouldn't, you know, be myself all the time because <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, do you feel like you've been treated radically genuine by your brother? Yeah, totally. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> um, I want to thank it's Diego Pinzon from Twitter at invisible mind SX for sending us that question. What's the story behind the name? This is a, this is an interesting question. This came, uh, this came to my, my private email. No way. No way. It it did. Uh, I want to thank Manuel from Florida. I'm calling this bunk. I'm going to read this. (laughs) 
Is it a, okay? Oh, I haven't. Oh it's, boy. It's been over a year since the widespread push for COVID 19 vaccination, mask mandates, and two years since kids were isolated at home and not allowed to attend in person school. We are now learning more about the harms of public health recommendations on mental health. Many of the recommendations, in retrospect, have provided much more harm than good. Even the vaccine effectiveness has been widely misrepresented. Many are questioning the medical establishment, given the censoring of experts and what now appear to be obvious lies. Sean, you in particular seem to question Roger and Kelly's concerns, assuming there were valid reasons for such recommendations, almost a blind trust in authority as if they are acting in our best interest. In fact, I think Roger and Kelly would refer to you as dangerously naive. Has your viewpoint changed? How has working in the mental health industry the last year and being exposed to the challenges changed your view around medical recommendations in conventional health recommendations? Great question. That is a great question. If this is, in fact, a real person, (laughs) is it? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, there's a lot of questions in there. So I would start uh, at the beginning. Um, I have a a one and a half year old who I couldn't imagine putting him in an environment where at that age you would be putting masks on like kids once they're over the age of two or like having them do school through a laptop or, or any of that crap. And I think we're starting to recognize the issue that it has on their development, uh, their ability to read facial expressions, their ability to socialize with other kids. So isolation to me is a horrible mistake ever moving forward. Uh, When any situation comes in the future and they're telling people to isolate, that's the worst thing you could do. Um, Regarding the vaccine effectiveness, yeah, I think this this has influenced me. I wouldn't say it was a blind trust, but I hadn't experienced anything negative uh, previously with uh, the medical industry, mostly because I haven't been that engaged in it. So... I th- I think I approached my situation being one where like why why should I mistrust it? But I think there's been enough that has come out over the last six months that now I recognize the importance of informed consent, of looking at things from both sides, making a decision for yourself, and not listening to those who come from a position of quote unquote authority that you have the authority over yourself as an individual. You should only be making the decisions that are right for you and for your family and not letting somebody tell you what you should be doing. Has you, have you changed it? Have you really kind of come to terms with the fact that, I mean, our viewpoint, or at least my viewpoint, I want to speak for Roger, I think we have a massive authority bias in this country. I think, I, I really do. And I think those the authority. I use. don't know if I would even just say this country. I would. Why would a bias? No, but, I, mean, I, think I think it's less in this country than around well, the world. Well, that's true. But I'm just saying. It, but the the overuse of media, the use of media, we're we, very influenced by media because we are a media driven society. But as so you, much money is driven by our entertainment industry, right. the news, the 24 hour news networks. God, you know how just, I know you've changed is because when we were all texting each other and there was a while where, you know, we were, t- we were texting things, your immediate response in many cases would be to joke and, <laughs> it, was, yeah. and it really was. And that wasn't anything you weren't being, I didn't take that, you know, as a personal, but I was like, well, obviously he's kind of like, get out of here. Joking you, has always been my defense. Mechanism, right. But you don't, way. but you don't do it. In fact, what I've seen and noticed that you do, which I appreciate is you'll actually, cause you're really good at researching. You'll actually look up and you'll send things back that he may confirm what we've done and and oftentimes it does and mm. i i'm i see a big change in that which i appreciate yeah well thank you yeah i think our our challenges and where you and i got into some problems in the past is that you had this bias toward that people who are in the in the public health sphere or in the government sphere we're trying to we're all making recommendations on the best interest of their constituencies where I always saw it as a power grab, a continued power grab that would restrict the freedoms and it was a slippery slope and it was interfering with our culture. Um, It was creating purposely, in my opinion, widespread fear that still has its consequences today. We see it with the rising rates of mental health. We We still see people wearing masks. They distorted research. They outwardly lied. I did the work around it at that time, so I was 
you know, much more angry about it. It was also came on the heels of all the work I was doing with the antidepressant data and, and learning about how scientific data can be manipulated and there could be widespread fraud in order to benefit a select group of people. And once you begin to accept that through history, that's always existed, mm -hmm. and you stay true to certain principles of a free society, and you believe in, in those principles, you support them no matter what the situation. There's no, well, in this case or in that case, individual freedoms and rights are really important to our mental health. When you begin to look at cultures or groups of people who feel restricted in upward mobility, who feel like they're limited or restricted based on their race or their gender or their culture, those impediments, those views of being oppressed have, a, have an impact. Look at some of the, our, our cities in the United States in poor communities. What do you see? I mean, it's, it's widespread violence and anger. Yeah. These are really, and, and exactly how I felt during the, uh, during the lockdowns when my kids couldn't go to school or I couldn't, it, would, it made it much more difficult for me to meet with patients because of the widespread fear that was being um, promoted where young and healthy people believe they were at risk of, a, of, of death from a severe illness. And that didn't fit the data. It still doesn't fit the data. And so there was another purpose in my perspective. It was trying to shift our system. It was trying to shift the way that the American people viewed and approached their, their lives and how they viewed government. And, you know, we've had previous podcasts and not everyone likes talking about this kind of stuff. But it's, it's important to us because I think it directly relates to a lot of the topics that we're discussing around the pharmaceutical industry and, and drugs and popular culture and how it has an impact on how you view your life. Um, there's a lot of self-limitations, you know, that can, that can exist based on the class you were born into, based on your experiences in the public school system, um, who your parents are and the families that you, you know, that you grew up in. And those limitations can stop you from living the life you're designed to live. I remember, you know, two years ago, even questioning all of this and being looked at like I was the one that was crazy or out, out, out there. Like, you're, you know, they were essentially calling me dangerously naive, you know, and I'm sitting there and doing all this research and trying to find medical journals and trying to find data. And I'm, I'm like, well, I'm pretty well educated on this. I'm not an expert, but I can tell you that there is something really bad going on here now that that has changed. And now you hear people and family members saying, you know, maybe you were right about that or you were and, and so I just, I encourage people to just always challenge, you know, the authority question everything. And Sean is no longer dangerously naive. We're going to call him dangerously enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. To, to close the book on this, um, where we need to be concerned right now is censorship. And we need to have the ability to hear from voices who have competing ideas. It's that open debate and dialogue that helps us learn. And I think what scared me the most was how very accomplished medical professionals were being censored. And they were being identified as spreading misinformation or you're put into a camp on right wing or, or this and that you're dangerous and um, you know you can develop policies that support censorship because of misinformation around COVID-19. And people didn't understand that limiting free speech, what that meant, what the consequences were. You can have your ideas. You can, and when it comes to psychiatric drugs and the research and the data, I've been reaching out to get somebody onto this podcast who wants to have a debate. So when I am on Twitter and those psychiatrists call me names or block me or retweet my, my comments as if they're dangerous, I don't take it personally. I look at it as an opportunity. Come onto the podcast. 
let's have a debate. I've done my work. I've seen the anecdotal evidence. It's in front of me for decades. I've talked to those who have har been harmed. I'm connected to the community. I've looked at the data. I've listened to other experts. I've talked to other experts. If there's something that you believe we're missing, let's talk about it. In a short amount of time, our podcast has jumped in the top 5% of downloads globally. It's and, incredible. And that's because of these topics. We haven't had a major guest on yet. We've had some people that are in our close inner, inner circle, but we haven't brought in on the experts. We will, right? We're, we're developing the topics. But that is freedom. It's, the, it's respecting people's right to make choices in the best interest of themselves and their family, as, less, as long as it's not harming somebody else. Mm -hmm. And the way we make those decisions, best make those decisions, is having access to information. And nobody has the right to control your information. No one has the right to determine what is misinformation. Because as you understand from this podcast, most of what's being um, flooded is in our, in our culture is for financial interests of some other industry or some other company, whether it's the food industry, the pharmaceutical industry, um, the entertainment industry, the fashion industry, right? It's always a message that is to benefit their bottom line or to benefit their, their shareholders. And we're talking, there's a movement, there's a shift. I do feel like there's a, there's a shift from having to go through this pandemic that people are going to be more focused on quality of life. And that's going to include their, their health, their mental health and their physical health. And listen, it's the, it's, it's not the actors or the influencers that are going to be sending you the messages that you're going to want to, to pay attention to. You're going to want to listen to people who've dedicated their lives into specific fields where they're passionate and even obsessed about it because that's their sense of purpose. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.